0: any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results the etf store is not affiliated with etf trends and etf database or any of its affiliates etf trends and etf database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by etf trends and etf database of the value of any etf store product or service visit etfstore.com for more information
1: With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF, NUSI, may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing whether you're an investing expert or just starting out. Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of
2: ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week, it's the ETF State of the Union. I like to do this at least once a year where I'll sit down with somebody in a key position in the world of ETFs and basically just have them talk about uh, where the industry's at and where it's going, talk opportunities, challenges, misconceptions. And I've gotta say, I could not have a better person to deliver this. I'll be joined by none other than the head of iShares Americas at BlackRock, Armando Senra. He's also a managing director there He's president of the iShares board. And I'm simply going to tee him up to talk about everything he's seen right now. Record ETF flows, where future growth will come from. I'm sure we'll talk ESG, active ETFs, thematics. Really, our only constraint here is time. And I'll just say, if you haven't heard Armando before, we're talking about an extremely sharp individual here. No surprise, given his position and the fact that iShares does manage over $3 trillion in global ETF assets, but I think you'll really enjoy hearing from him, and I'm interested to get his take on the overall state of ETFs right now. Also joining me this week will be David Jakansky, portfolio manager and partner at Taroso Investments, who, among other things, Taroso manages the SoFi lineup of ETFs it's six etfs over 400 million in assets and we're going to look at two in particular both of which i think are timely just given the markets and economy right now the first is the sofi social 50 etf which holds the 50 most popular stocks on the sofi platform of course meme stocks and the rise of the uh, retail trading uh, trader and social investing that's been a big story this year and so we'll talk about that as it pertains to this etf And then the other ETF is the SoFi Gig Economy ETF, which holds companies like Square and Shopify, Airbnb, companies that are really benefiting from this shift to on-demand workers who are leveraging digital platforms. And no question, the pandemic has helped accelerate a shift here. So we'll walk through both of those ETFs. Now, to start this week, I have ETF Trends Dave Nottig on the line with me from Massachusetts. He's recently back from Camp Kotak in Maine, where some of the smartest economic and investment minds gather to fish and eat and drink, play a little poker, but more importantly, talk economics and investing. Dave's going to give us a recap of that now. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF
1: Database the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news,
3: trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is, in effect, driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate space. Dave, thanks for joining me this week. Yeah, uh, Thanks for having me, as always, Nate. Okay,
2: so on a scale of 1 to 10, your fishing skills, <laughs> where do you rank them?
3: Oh, I'm solidly middle of the bell curve. I'm a five if I'm
2: anywhere. <laughs> That's not bad. That's
3: not bad in the sweet spot of the curve. What, what about your poker skills? One to ten. Oh, that's probably more like a three, but, uh, you know, it's not about winning. It's about playing, right? Okay. What about wine drinking,
2: wine drinking
3: skills? Well, I've gotten, I've gotten to be a bit of a teetotaler, so not quite so much my jam, but there was some very nice wine port. Yeah. That's probably where I would excel.
2: (laughs) Those three. (laughs) All right. So look for people who aren't familiar with Camp Kotak, uh, this is held in Maine every year. It's invite only. Uh, As I was alluding to, it's attended by economists, investment managers, uh, academic types. Just take us inside this a little. Uh, What's the experience like? You were there, what,
3: five days? Yeah. So this is, I think, my seventh or eighth year going back to this. Um, And obviously, we didn't go last year. This is uh, an annual event run by David Kotak of Cumberland Advisors, who I'm guessing your listeners are pretty familiar with a multi billion dollar, primarily fixed income manager based in Sarasota, Florida. Um, And David, uh, you know, for years has sort of brought around him a group of, you know, Fed economists, Fed bankers, uh, portfolio managers, folks that he works with in his professional life. Uh, And the the idea is to get off the grid, uh, which it's pretty close to. I mean, there is some very sketchy Internet connection, but for the most part, you know, it's not a place where people are going to do any work uh, and spend five days talking about the state of the world. Uh, and it's a very diverse group. Uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, from the left to the right side of the political spectrum, from folks who've worked in government service their entire careers to people who are entrepreneurs doing fundraising for a startup. Uh, you know, you, you get a pretty broad group there. Um, and, it, it, you know, I think it serves that purpose. It's incredibly difficult to get to, which, you know, has a certain quality of going through the knothole. It's, you know, another two and a half hours after you get to Bangor, um, So it's really in the middle of nowhere in Maine. And it's obviously breathtakingly beautiful uh, and gorgeous. Uh, it's also in one of the poorest counties in the world, uh, or at least in the United States uh, in Maine, uh, you know, deeply rural Uh, And so I think it's it's a really interesting opportunity to both have some great conversations and also experience a part of the world most of us don't get to see.
2: And this was canceled last year with COVID, correct?
3: Yeah, and this year they came back in with two weeks to split, to basically make it so that we could have lower occupancy and, and be a little bit safer. Um, strong, You know, super strong uh, COVID protocols in place. Everybody had to be vaccinated. There was testing. It was a big, complex process to get in. Uh, but once we were there, it felt surprisingly normal. And honestly, after the last year and a half, that by itself was a gift.
2: Okay, so you recently wrote what I thought was a very thought-provoking piece where you recapped your key takeaways from the week. This is titled Notes from Camp Kotak: The Ghost Boat. This is posted at etftrends.com. Uh, highly recommend everyone check this out. But let let you and I discuss a few of the highlights and I'll just open this up to you. You can go wherever you want. What did you walk away with? And you might start by explaining the uh, Ghost Boat for people who aren't familiar.
3: Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the major topics was of course COVID and um and David has been D- David is a huge proponent of public health. He was way early and very strong on Zika. Remember that? Remember the last time we had a, a, a you know some, some pathogen that was going to take over the country, um, which, you know, in fact, was a terrible tragedy and, and caused all sorts of birth defects and, and had real equity issues in terms of who was affected in the southern part of the country and who wasn't. So he's been very in front on this. So we had at attending the event as guests, some folks with epidemiology backgrounds and doctors and folks from, you know, connected to the CDC, etc. So we talked a lot about COVID. And the thing that I came away from Aside from having a much firmer understanding on some of the science underneath the hood of the Delta variant and things like that, we actually had a, a science class where we went through all the different proteins and enzymes like we really got deep into it. But what I came out the other side with was while we've got a lot of focus on how to crack this problem right now it's very difficult to predict what this is going to mean for the future Um, and the narrowest example of that is well what's the economic impact of long COVID going to be Uh, and we had a big debate about that and of course Nobody really knows because how can we say what long COVID means when we're only a year and a half into this, we don't know what the 10 year impacts on somebody's health are. And therefore, we don't know what the impact on things like labor force participation are going to be. And so we really went deep into that. and, And what I walked away with was mostly a sense of how little we know, and how little we can predict with any confidence about the longer term impacts of this event that we're still going through.
2: Well, let me ask you this, because as you were listening to those conversations, I I, I know you, I'm sure your investment mind was turning and trying to figure out, okay, how does this impact uh, the the investment world? And it's funny, you may recall back in uh, early July, you and I discussed another piece you wrote, which was on volatility, and how models can't predict the future, and how there are so many unknowns in the market right now. And you talked about how uh, tails will likely become fatter. And, and, and faster moving forward, which that could lead investors to more aggressively seek hedges to those tails. I, I guess as you listen to these conversations, and I know in your piece you just talked about how there is so much uncertainty out there. There's no playbook for this. We don't know how this might impact the economy moving forward. But from an investment standpoint, I mean, did, did you walk away, I guess, with the same takeaway that you wrote about a couple months ago? Did Camp Kotak just sort of reinforce that
3: for you? Yeah, I do think. I mean, I still think we're living in a very fat-tailed world where we underestimate um, the likelihood of crashes, both up and down. Right. I mean, I you know, if you told me that the S and P was going to move twenty-five percent between now and the end of the year, uh, and didn't tell me which direction, I would believe you. Like, I mean, either one of those seems like a potential scenario. I can imagine a world where we crash up twenty-five percent. I can imagine a place where we're sitting here seventy-five percent of today's value. Like, those both seem like potential outcomes over a six-month window. That's pretty scary. In terms of very narrow specific things about the investment world, I think labor is what I keep coming back to. Most of the unknowns about what's going on in the global economy really come down to the human impact of this. Um, And that shows up in all sorts of ways. They're they're very short-term ones, like the fact that we have a a huge crisis in terms of labor availability in the healthcare field, uh, nurses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, That's very immediate. We can see that. And that's something that's very difficult to solve, you don't just spontaneously make more ICU nurses they take years to develop and you have to incentivize a population to go get that job and you do that with money so yeah there are narrow pockets like healthcare where you can say there's gonna be a labor reset if nothing else and possibly sustained labor inflation but any place you look at broad uh, collections of labor that either now all of a sudden have had an experience that make them think about that value differently which I would argue is the younger millennial generation or where you've got a group of people who have left the labor force in skilled positions that are difficult to immediately replace. And I would argue that that is, we're seeing that in healthcare, we're seeing that in hospitality and travel, we're seeing that in education. And those are not short-term fixes. So they that because they're not short-term fixes, that means that there should be opportunities there for investors to at least get out of the way of problems, potentially invest to solve them. I guess a
2: dovetail on that, I mean, you did talk a lot about labor in your piece, and you talked about how power is shifting here, that people are demanding higher wages and better working conditions. And as you were just alluding to, I think people experiencing work from home and not having to commute and and those sort of things. Not everybody, right, but a certain uh, portion of the labor force. I mean, what what do you think are some of the longer term implications of that? Let's say that Um, labor does start accruing more power and and we see this shift. I mean, is there any takeaway from that?
3: Yeah. So some of it we've been talking about for a year and a half. So the the repricing of work from home related stocks, for instance. Yeah. Those things are there. I think the big question is, are we seeing a reset or are we seeing sustained inflation? I don't think anybody's going to argue that a year from now we're going to look back and there's going to be charts that show the average wage, particularly in the bottom quintile of employees. And you're going to see a, a, a you know giant mountain that shows up there because we reset the value of labor. I mean, $15 has become the default minimum wage in most of the country. Uh, whether or not that's written down on a piece of paper or not. That's just what it takes to get somebody to do a basic services job in most of the country. If that continues, right, if that is a, hey, you know what? Labor is going to go on a five-year tear of repricing throughout the global economy. That has very different implications than if this was a one-time reset. Both are great from an income inequality perspective, right? Obviously, they have a certain playing field level in quality. They're actually great for the overall economy because people at the bottom end of the of the income spectrum are more likely to spend, and therefore an incremental dollar in their pockets is actually much better for the economy than an incremental dollar in the pocket of a billionaire. Um, So uh, overall, those are positive things. But I think what we need to be careful of is those pockets where we're going to have problems for a sustained period of time. Global shipping, healthcare these are places where we've got long-term impacts that are not just going to bubble through in a month or two. They may bubble through in a year or two, but they're not going to bubble through real quick
2: what about from more of a cultural or political perspective so you just mentioned uh income inequality and i remember when you and i visited a couple of years ago after you came back from camp kotak one of the key takeaways was that there was this potential for greater civil unrest partly because of uh, the the growing wealth gap right and i look since then um, there has been a lot more discussion about capitalism itself And is the system set up to give everyone a fair shot or is it just a winner take all mentality that leaves some people behind? And I'll I'll tell you, I mean, you talk to younger individuals, as I'm sure you have. I'm not saying we're heading for socialism or anything like that, but something does seem to have changed. I I feel like there's a different mentality. And I I feel like what we've experienced over the past, you know, whatever, 18 months has accelerated
3: that. I mean, do, do you agree with that? hundred percent. I think that the the generation that is currently entering the workforce, you call it folks, they're twenty one to thirty five. Right. Of which we had some representation at Camp Kotak. So I don't feel like I'm speaking completely out of my you know what. they they're approaching this set of problems that we're facing with a very different mindset right they are legitimately concerned about climate change regard almost regardless of where they are on the political spectrum they may have disagreements about what to do about it um, politically uh, but they're very concerned about climate change they're very concerned about global health we just went through an example in the united states where we without a lot of fanfare socialized an enormous healthcare program and then sort of we're just going to let it go like most people did not pay a couple hundred bucks for their Pfizer vaccine, right? They got it for free because of a government program because their insurance was reimbursed, whatever. That's as close as the United States has come to socialized medicine. since we since we passed Medicare. Um, and so those things leave a mark. People remember, oh, okay, well, we actually managed to pull that off. We got vaccine distributed almost anywhere in the country. That's a socialized program that's going to resonate with a generation. That's going to be their experience. Remember, folks who are entering the labor force now, right now, have no recollection of 9-11, that they were not here for it. It was a ghost in their past, like World War II is to you and me, Nate. And and therefore, this is the seminal event of their young adulthood. This was what will determine their political and economic leanings.
2: Something that you wrote that really struck a chord with me, and I, I want to read this. I'll read a portion of it. You said... I have long held the belief that if you want to predict the future, look at what's going on in culture. While policy is being made by baby boomers, still the future is firmly in the hands of young people. Which I have to say is a side note. This actually reminds me of the crypto tax provision that was just jammed into the infrastructure bill, which we can talk about that that if you want. But um, you, you said, quote, the inside generation is not sitting around waiting for D.C. to figure things out. They're just getting on with their lives and they're not really going to ask permission. And you tied that into saying, look, that's why the, the quit rate is up and business formation is rocketing. And you said this all ties into Robin Hood in, in crypto, um, which, by the way, do you want to talk about inside? I haven't seen that this Netflix special.
3: Yeah. So, I, you know, I am a bit of a culture hound on these things. And I do think that as as populations age, right, as I've gotten into my 50s, I've made a very strong effort to stay connected to what's going on with culture at the younger age, 20 and 25. Um, and I hope I do that till the day I die, because I do think that's where you get that window. Bo Burnham's Inside, enormously popular, popular Netflix special. Not only does it have several songs that are explicitly about labor in his generation, about pay, unpaid internships, about the exploitation of human capital, like which is not exactly average fare for a comedian. So like we should pay attention to that. But second of all... It is the document of his generation of some folks in their 20s who basically got locked in a box for a year. Um, And that has a psychological impact, too. That special, I think, goes into that. I think as folks focused on the economy, we need to ask ourselves what that means in terms of what that generation is going to do, because that is our labor force. Certainly, it's our services labor force uh, as a country. And so we should pay attention to its needs. When you look at things like the quit rate being enormously high in the middle of a, a world where we've got Uh, You know, all of these labor crises, we've got unemployment insurance rolling off and yet people are still quitting their jobs at all time highs. I've seen the anecdotal evidence and I've seen the the statistical evidence folks are not willing to put up with jobs that don't pay well enough or that put them in a position they don't want to be in. I've talked to dozens and dozens of folks in their 20s who have quit jobs during the pandemic because they didn't want to go into work at a restaurant and they found a customer service job they could do online that paid better. Who wouldn't take that bet?
2: Well, it's amazing. And, and the thing is, we won't fully comprehend or understand the implications of this for what, decades? Right? This isn't something yeah. that's going to play out over a year or two. Uh, we're, we're seeing this happen now, but we're not going to fully understand the implications for, for a decade. Dave, Dave, I have to ask you, um, just out of curiosity at Camp Kotok, was there much discussion around Bitcoin and crypto?
3: Yeah, there was actually a a decent amount. We had a whole separate session on central bank digital currencies, which was really fascinating. Uh, Leland Clemens from uh, China Beige Book was uh, sort of helping with that discussion. Uh, So yeah, there's but there's a lot of discussion around that. Um, A lot of skepticism from the larger institutional investors in the room. A lot of enthusiasm from some of the younger folks in the room. I'm sort of in the middle of that camp where I'm sort of trying to figure out the bridge between the old economy and the new economy. So a lot of discussion there. I wouldn't say that we solved any of the world's crypto problems there, uh, but it definitely had invaded Camp Kotak.
2: OK, before I let you go, since you and I haven't talked for several weeks, I want to get your take on two ETF stories that have bubbled up here over the past couple of weeks. Just a couple minutes left. Um, let's stay on the topic of Bitcoin and crypto. You actually wrote another piece that just posted on Friday. It was on Bitcoin futures ETFs. And I think we're up to, what is it, five futures-based ETF filings?
3: 490. I don't know. How can you keep track? (laughs) Yeah.
2: But, you know, these started, uh, we we started seeing these after SEC Chairman uh, Gary Gensler. He seemed to message that this could be a path forward uh, for, for Bitcoin ETFs. Do you think one or all of these could get approved before the end of the year?
3: Yeah, I think it's quite likely that we get um, sort of a a set of rails we understand how to run on by the end of the year. Now, that's sort of the two most likely ways. uh, I I have marginal belief in this. We might see the Valkyrie proposal, which is the simplest. It's just Bitcoin futures using the Cayman Island process to sort of be able to get the full exposure, uh, which is which we're familiar with from commodities funds. I think there's a decent chance that gets approved first and then everybody refiles to to follow suit. I also think there's a a pretty likely chance that what we get is a set of guidance within this 75 day window we're in right now, which sends everybody back to the drawing board um, with some questions. And those questions will probably be around manipulating the futures market. Is there enough liquidity? How are you going to handle positions limits? Those are all answerable questions that probably require a little bit of tweaking in the filings. Um, So at that point, I think then you get a Another 75-day window in approval. So, you know, what does that put us at? About 150 days on the outside? I think that's a reasonable guess.
2: But just to be clear, in terms of a physical Bitcoin ETF, uh, minimal shot this year.
3: Oh, I think this pushes all of that way out. Um, At this point, I I retract my I certainly retract my August 18th, which I think was my prediction was tomorrow. I don't think that's going to happen. And honestly, at this point, with Gensler's recent comments and what we're seeing in some of the interest in Congress and some of this stuff. I think we're probably a couple years out.
2: now. If it makes you feel better, I think I've been wrong on this for like four years now. So,
3: oh, it's OK. I was wrong about non-transparent active for a solid five. So <laughs> and then, hey, just a minute
2: here. Uh, last week, JP Morgan came out and said they plan on converting 10 billion dollars of active mutual funds into Huge. ETFs. Yeah. I mean, you look, DFA converted 30 billion in mutual funds ETFs earlier this year. Do you think this is the uh, the, the, the floodgates now opening here?
3: Oh, I think any ETF that has significant assets, decent track record, any kind of traction that isn't fully spread out in 401ks uh, is going to get converted. I mean, and this is just the way the world is going. It's quite easy to do now. If you're willing to let things be transparent and you can just do them under 6C11, it's really not difficult to do these big conversions. If you're trying to convert them into non-transparent active you know, more complexity. Uh, And if you're trying to do this in a fund that's like, you know, in everybody's 401k, that becomes more difficult too. And that's where we'll more likely see things like the Fidelity Magellan clone ETF as opposed to a direct conversion.
2: Dave, great stuff as always. Thank you for joining me this week. Uh, Thanks for having me. Always great. That was Dave Noddick, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Global X ETFs. The energy landscape is changing before people's eyes, and innovative companies are bringing green technologies like solar panels, smart appliances, and electric vehicles to our homes and driveways. The prospect of a federal infrastructure deal this year could offer significant room for these technologies to grow. Ready to invest in the transition to green energy? Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn how.
2: I am now joined by Armando Senra, Managing Director, Head of iShares Americas at BlackRock. Of course, iShares is the largest ETF issuer in the world. They recently surpassed $3 trillion in global ETF assets. And here in the U.S., they currently offer nearly 400 ETFs, over $2.2 trillion in assets. And I should note that Armando has actually been with the firm. Since 1994, he was with Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, which merged with BlackRock in 2006. So he's been along for this entire ETF ride. He also currently serves as president of the iShares board, and he's now on the line with me from New York. Armando, great to connect. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Nate. Great to be here. Okay, so you get the distinct pleasure of delivering the ETF State of the Union on this podcast. I like to do this eh, once or twice a year. I just think it's always good to take a step back and take stock of where everything stands. And I thought what we might do is let's start higher level with ETFs more broadly speaking. And then we can certainly drill down into uh, iShares more specifically. Uh, So look, as we sit here today, There's been well over $500 billion in net inflows into ETFs this year. That's already surpassed the total for the entire year of 2020. And, of course, last year was a record year for ETFs. Start there. Give us some perspective on these record flows and perhaps talk about what you think have been some of the key drivers.
4: Sure, Nate. Um, Like you said, incredible growth uh, just for many years. But, um, I mean, you mentioned iShares. It took us 15 years to get to $1 trillion, five years to get to $2 trillion, and only two years to get to $3 trillion. Uh, and I still believe we're in the early days of growth. Um, so I think that the, the, the growth you're seeing this year is a continuation of a number of drivers, you know, whether it's a desire for transparency, for access to different markets uh, and investment vehicles, for tax efficiency, um, and, and you have more and more investors that are turning to ETFs. As, as really the main, uh, the essential building block for portfolio construction. Uh, I think if you go back to the to the earlier days, um, you know, those, are, those were some of the basic drivers. Then, of course, the transformation of the, the business model uh, in, um, in advice, moving to fee base, and that also led to the growth in model portfolios, which is a massive driver for ETF growth. Uh, and again, you know, I think that the old conversation around active and index—that's all—that's an old conversation that is dead. Uh, ultimately, it's about ETFs and how they have become the essential tool for active investors to build portfolios. Uh, so it's no longer a conversation about active or index. Um, and the, the reason I mentioned we're still in the early days when you look at the total size here in the U.S. of equity ETFs compared to U.S. equity assets. It's a little bit less than 10%. If you look at fixed income ETFs, which you remember last year experienced phenomenal growth, they are less than 2% of U.S. Um, of U.S. fixed income assets. So there's a tremendous amount of growth that is ahead of us. Um, I would say all the drivers that you've seen uh, in the last couple of years, you mentioned the record flows in 2020, the record flows this year, uh, the elimination of commissions back in 2019 really fueled the growth uh, of uh, ETFs, primarily in the RIA space, also with self-directed investors. We've seen the tremendous growth coming in sustainable um, ETFs. Um, also, fixed income ETFs. I think that we, we had a lot of growth already, but I think 2020, 2021 uh, are really a uh, catalyst for, um, for a lot of the growth that we've seen. And, of course, I think that what is also happening is the innovation that continues to, to take place in the ETF world. Uh, in 2020, 2021, you've seen tremendous growth in thematic thematic investing. I already mentioned fixed income ETFs, uh, the growth in sustainable uh, so those are new factors that continue to fuel the growth uh, for ETFs uh, around the world.
2: It's interesting you mentioned the iShares growth trajectory, and I mentioned this a few years or a few weeks ago on the podcast. So the first U.S. listed ETF launched in January of 1993, and it took until December 2010 for ETFs to hit one trillion in assets. But they then hit two trillion in December 2014, three trillion in July 2017. $4 trillion in July 2019, mm-hmm. $5 trillion in uh, November 2020, $6 trillion in, in April of this year. And, of course, uh, they're, they're now knocking on the door of $7 trillion here in the U.S. It's just uh, re- remarkable, the acceleration here. And to your point, you, you know, about it still being early, I mean, equity ETFs only represent, what, 10% of, of U.S. equity assets? You know, bond yeah. ETFs, what, a little over 2%? There, there's a lot of runway here.
4: There's a lot of runway, and, and again, you know, it, it goes back to what I just said. You know, you continue to see new areas of growth, thematic investing, uh, sustainable. Uh, you also begin to see uh, more inactive, uh, primarily in thematic space. So active managers using the ETF as the, um, as the vehicle of choice. Uh, and that's because investors, are the, you know, ultimately it's all driven by client demand um, and and clients like the, the the efficiency of the ETF, the lower cost of the ETF, uh, the like the transparency of the ETF. And those are all drivers that continue to fuel the industry.
2: I mentioned at the top iShares recently surpassing $3 trillion globally. And I looked yesterday. So here in the U.S., iShares ETFs have already seen well over $100 billion in net inflows this year. Now, you just walked through a, a number of drivers for the industry as a whole, and I, I think we also have to mention, clearly, the financial markets have been a, a strong tailwind I- as well. But in terms of iShares-specific drivers, um, is it all of the same things that you just uh, mentioned, or are there other factors that are contributing to, to
4: iShares' growth as well? No, I mean, look, it's uh, it's just incredible to think of the reach of iShares. Uh, here in the U.S., we have uh, we estimate that there's about 22 million people that are own iShares ETFs, about 100 million across the world uh, that utilize our indexing capabilities. So just, you know, the reach of the vehicle, the reach of iShares is just a staggering. Um, in terms of the growth, it's been catalyzed by, by the same dynamics that I mentioned. I would say, you know, for us, uh, if especially if I look at the last couple of years, the growth in sustainable has been uh, a dramatic engine of growth. Uh, the growth in thematics, which already represents one of the fastest segments that we have. We call them, uh, as you know, mega trends, uh, And fixed income, the fixed income lineup. I, I think that the breadth of the platform that we have, you mentioned 400 exposures, that continues to grow. We continue to innovate. We continue to find new avenues to offer new tools for investors to express their views. Uh, but I would say that when you think of the product, I would say sustainable thematics and fixed income are the main ones. When you think about the clients... Um, what's happening with clients. I would say, you know, the growth in model portfolios uh, and then the elimination of trading commissions back in 2019. I go back to that. that, was, uh, that, that that's been a huge accelerant of the growth of ETFs. Um, and, of course, you have seen the acceleration in self-directed, in the, in the growth in the self-directed space, um, and we are, we're participating on that growth as well.
2: Maybe we can talk about each of those items that you brought up in in a little more detail, because I think it really ties into what's next for the ETF industry, right? What the future holds just in terms of overall growth and and product innovation. You mentioned uh, model portfolios. This is an interesting area to me, just ETF model portfolios as a distribution channel. And I saw the uh, Financial Times recently reported that BlackRock has set a goal for half That's half of U.S. ETF flows to come from advisor models. And they also noted that last year, about a third of BlackRock's U.S. ETF flows came from models. Can you talk more uh, about this? Because I don't think there's any question. This is quickly becoming a very important distribution channel for ETFs.
4: Yes, and it goes back to what I said at the beginning, in terms of the ETF becoming the essential building block of portfolio construction. So think about that. The ETF, essential building block of portfolio construction, uh, the US and the world moving to fee base, uh, where it really is a practice change for advisors, where they recognize think about last year, you know, like with the, the massive volatility that we had, advisors recognize the value of uh, dedicating their time to spend with their clients, to helping them navigate different financial. Uh, challenges and opportunities that they have, but delegating the, the management to a model portfolio where there's someone that is um, rebalancing that portfolio, worrying about the investments, about the reallocation. Uh, so the, the, in within model portfolios and that drive to fee base, the ETF is the essential building block. It's, lo- it's low cost. You have plenty of exposures to choose from. Um, you know, the, the model portfolios represents four trillion. It's a four trillion market here in the U.S. Uh, and you know, like you said, w- right now we estimate that about a third of our flows come from models, but we see that growing to be half, and that's because of the growth in model portfolios. The, the other thing that is also interesting to clarify, because I get a lot of questions around that, is that we have great growth in our own BlackRock model portfolio platform. But the fastest growth, the biggest part of the growth is coming from third-party um, third-party managers utilizing our exposure. So not the BlackRock models. We have great growth in BlackRock models. But the bigger part of the industry that uh, fuels our growth is all the people building models with our ETFs.
2: It's amazing. You mentioned the model market being at about $4 trillion at the end of last year. That same Financial Times piece said that uh, BlackRock expects that market to grow to $10 trillion in, in the next five years. Pretty remarkable. Um, Armando, you, you mentioned ESG or sustainable investing. Let's talk more about that. And, uh, look, listeners know I, I've admittedly been a little bit skeptical of this space. I'm, I'm just not sure if retail investors and advisors really want this. Now, that said, I also realize that the BlackRock U.S. Carbon Transition Readiness ETF ticker, LCTU, that's the most successful ETF launch this year, uh, though I will say my understanding is a large pension uh, generated the bulk of assets here. But nevertheless, g- give me the counter to that. Like, why do you expect retail investors and advisors to, to really embrace ESG?
4: It, the, this, the easiest answer is that it's because it's not about your values or beliefs. Uh, ultimately, ESG is about investment risk and performance. And I think that look, if you just look at one of the easiest examples you know, and you look at what is what has been happening this year in terms of natural disasters, whether it 's the wildfires in the west coast, the floods in Germany or china it 's easy to understand why you need to think about climate risk in your portfolio. So this is not about whether you believe in climate change or not let's let's put that aside for a second. You know what is happening, so climate is having an impact on your portfolio we 've seen utility companies go 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 bankrupt. Uh, We've seen supply chains disrupted, insurance companies having to make multi-billion-dollar payments. So this does not live in the abstract. It is impacting your life, our lives, but it's also impacting your portfolio. So. Once you move to that, and you understand that ESG risks have an impact on performance and risk. Therefore, you should put an ESG lens across the entire portfolio that you have. And and I think that that's the biggest change in the investment world today. Uh, The flows are there and the performance is there, which is really one of the things that in the past, um, ESG investing or sustainable investing used to be associated with sacrificing return. And we're actually saying is is the opposite to that. Um, we should be able to get better performance when you put a ESG lens to your portfolio because it, it is about investment risk and investment performance. So if you just look from a flow perspective, you mentioned LCTU. It's actually the biggest. Um, ETF launch ever. It's amazing. Uh, with with 1.2 billion at launch. And it's true. It came, you know, look, it's really interesting, by the way. Uh, a lot of times we tend to think of ETFs and we associate them with the retail investor. Here you have an ETF that we launched working together with Calsters and other uh, large asset owners around the world. They invested in it uh, because they like what it's offering, like in the case of LCTU. It's a Russell 1000 exposure, but with 50% less carbon intensity. Um, and that's what you're getting with that exposure. So, again, you know, I think that once you move away from values and you think about ESG from the perspective of risk and performance, um, that's what we are seeing the growth. We just passed $130 billion in, in ESG um, ETFs globally. Here in the U.S. it's about half of that. Uh, this year alone, uh, about $17 year to date. Um, think about one of the biggest exposures that we have, ESGU, which is large cap, mid cap um, in the U.S., is reaching $21 billion in assets. Um, so there's clear demand, and this is one that I can tell you we are in the very early days. Uh, but the acceleration in the flows that we're seeing here in the U.S. is just amazing because, you know, back in 2019, this was really a European story. Now, half of the flows are coming from the U.S.
2: All right. Another area that you mentioned is fixed income ETFs. And this is an interesting category to me, just given how low interest rates still are. So I've said before, I think the bond portion of a portfolio is the single greatest challenge for investors right now. And the, the question I have for you is, do you expect more... Uh, innovation here, additional bond strategies coming to market, or do you think investors will uh, instead look to alternative asset classes and and strategies, trying to find that income in in returns, or is it both? What do you see happening here?
4: I think it's all of the above. I mean, uh, we do have more innovation uh, happening in fixed income ETFs. Uh, There's a lot that we have uh, on the pipeline to introduce to the market uh, to enhance income, for instance. Uh, I think that there's also, um, you know, the, the, the main driver for growth in fixed income ETFs is more and more investors, both retail and institutional, are replacing bonds, individual bonds, for, fig, for fixed income ETFs as an easier way to to access uh, bond exposure. And that's a lot of what we saw last year. Uh, last year, we, we saw tremendous growth in fixed income, and it's because, you know, in the months of March and April, um, a lot of investors saw that as the ultimate test for fixed-income ETFs, uh, where the fixed-income ETF was able to offer the liquidity. It was actually not present in the bond market, and it was a, a more simpler, efficient way to gain exposure to uh, to uh, to the fixed-income market. And, you know, like, I, I think that that's what we are seeing. We're seeing the replacement of bonds for fixed-income ETFs again, uh, uh, in portfolio construction, uh, in bonds, uh, in, sorry, in model portfolios, uh, and across both retail and institutional uh, clients as well. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of innovation coming through. You know, for instance, we're working on uh, a bigger um, lineup uh, of fixed-income sustainable or fixed-income ESG ETFs. Uh, so, again, more ways for investors to be able to express and gain exposure to bond markets across uh, through fixed-income ETFs.
2: Okay, another category you mentioned is thematic ETFs, mm-hmm. and I, I know iShares has significantly expanded its lineup here. Overall, thematic ETFs have been one of the fastest growing segments of the ETF industry. Uh, I, I'm assuming you expect that to continue, and if so, I mean any additional color you can offer here, just in terms of how these are being used in portfolios.
4: Yeah, it's been you know, like you, like you mentioned, it's been one of the the fastest growth areas in the last couple of years. Um, you know, before I talk, the way we think of thematics uh, is in within our framework that we call megatrends. And we believe that the five megatrends of the framework, you know, technological breakthroughs, demographics and social change, uh, rapid urbanization, climate change and resource scarcity and emerging global wealth are trends that are going to drive uh, and change the economy, society, and our lives. So we believe these are long-term trends. So these are not short-term trends that you're just trying to um – Uh, Take a tactical allocation. We believe these are long-term trends that are changing our lives uh, and the economy. So that's how we build product. We work with our active investors. We work with our index investors. We work with the BlackRock Investment Institute to develop products that fit that, uh, that framework. Now, why are these products attractive to clients? They're very relatable. Uh, investors understand the stories behind these products. They, they like to talk about these stories. Uh, and what is really interesting thing is that because they are relatable, uh, clients develop, if you want, an emotional connectivity that helps them stay invested. And we know that staying invested delivers better returns. Uh, so if you look at last year, people that got out of the market with the volatility in March, April, they, they, they missed the, the tremendous rally that came after. Uh, so, if you're an investor and you, for instance, as an example, you like electric vehicles, uh, of course, you can buy one company that produces electric vehicles, or you can buy iDrive, uh, one of our megatrend uh, ETFs. And then you're gaining exposure to not only the electric vehicle companies, you're gaining uh, exposure to the entire value chain that is behind this theme globally. The batteries, the battery producers, the, uh, the, um, the lithium makers, the, um, the sensor makers, uh, so the entire value chain behind this theme. Uh, so you get a full diversified portfolio behind something that you believe in. Most recently, infrastructure. One of the key investment themes that we have in the BlackRock Investment Institute for 2021, you read the headlines on the back of what is happening in Washington. If you believe that there's going to be massive investments in, uh, in, the, in the renewal of, uh, of our infrastructure here in the U.S. by the IFRA fund, our infra fund, these are relatable themes. And I think that that's what is driving a lot of the growth that you see in this segment, And we continue to believe that, we'll, that the growth will continue.
2: All right. This is the ETF State of the Union, so we're covering it all this week, and we're going rapid fire here. Talk to me about active ETFs. This actually seems like the hottest ETF topic so far this year. There's been a ton of launches, uh, outsized flows into active ETFs, just given what their total assets are as a percentage of the industry overall. But what's your take on the future of active ETFs?
4: Yep. Yep. It's just that, you know, over 200 new active ETF launches uh, since 2019, right? Uh, And you have more asset managers, many that didn't used to believe in the ETF uh, vehicle, uh, now wrapping their strategies in the ETF. So that speaks a lot about uh, the the efficiency and accessibility uh, of the wrapper. Uh, For us, uh, it begins with performance. So what we like to think is, okay, what are we trying to solve for clients, uh, do we have the investment performance? Uh, and that could be, is it, do we have an index that best matches that, uh, that solution for a client? Or do we have an active investment team that can provide uh, outperformance in that asset class? Uh, and then we start thinking around what is the best vehicle to wrap that strategy? As you know, we have mutual funds, we have um, a separate account capabilities, SMAs, we uh, also launch closed in funds, and of course we have uh, ETFs. So, for us, it doesn't begin with the wrapper, it begins with what is the strategy, what is the client solution we're trying to reach, and then uh, we decide the wrapper. To me, the key with active ETFs ultimately is performance, just like with any other active product. The ETF, as a wrap, can be a better structure, a more tax-efficient structure, uh, but ultimately it's all about performance. And and that's where the flows are going. If you have the performance, if it's um, uh, the right exposure at the right time, that's where the flows are going.
2: Okay, two more areas I want to ask you about. And the, the first goes back to what you were discussing earlier, sort of the rise of this self-directed investor, the retail investor. I do think the commission-free trading has certainly played a role there. But the, the the area that I want to focus on here is ETF education. And the question that I have for you is, do you feel like progress is being made here? I feel like ETF education always comes up as a topic when talking about retail investors. Uh, you know, there are some products on the market that can be more complex, complicated. And some retail investors have had negative experiences in those ETFs, which I think, unfortunately, can give the entire industry a, a black eye at times. Um, but but does more need to be done here? Do you have any other thoughts around ETF education?
4: Yeah. I mean, that's one topic that is really – I'm glad you brought it up. We are paranoid around uh, investor education. We're paranoid around working with regulators – uh, and other uh, industry participants uh, to be able to make sure that uh, to the best of our ability, uh, investors have a good experience and understand what they are buying. Uh, so that's twofold, both the, stake- the you know, regulation industry, um, more transparency, more clarity uh, uh, for the industry, and then also helping investors understand how to achieve the objectives that they're trying to achieve. And we spend a lot of time and energy Uh, behind investor education. And that's one of the things that, I mean, look, it's just been phenomenal, right? The growth in self-directed investors. Over the last year, um, over 10 million new direct brokerage accounts were open in the U.S. It's just staggering. Uh, And that's on the back of commission-free trading. That's also on the back of more people working from home, spending more time looking at their finances. So it's just been phenomenal growth. Now, our mission, our responsibility, what we see as our responsibility is to help Those investors understand how to make their investment decisions, how to build a diversified portfolio, not just to chase the market uh, based on what has been happening in the last year and a half, but also how you build a portfolio. What are the benefits of diversification? Do you understand the products that you're buying? So we're spending a tremendous amount of time in investor education for that reason.
2: Who do you think the burden ultimately falls on for education? Is it ETF issuers? Is it everybody in the ETF ecosystem? Does that, you know, filter over to financial advisors? I mean, is it everyone, or do you think somebody in particular should carry the uh, the, the flag
4: here? Well, look, I, I think ultimately, the, I mean, self-directed investors are. You know, by definition, they're directing their own investments, so the, they don't use an advisor. I think that we definitely see our responsibility to be able to uh, help investors make make better decisions. We've spent a lot of time in, on our website. We spend a lot of time on our uh, with our distribution partners, creating webinars. Creating educational materials, we spend a, a tremendous amount of time with advisors, uh, walking through, uh, walking them through what's happening in the industry. How are we building portfolios? Uh, portfolio construction tools that we uh, we create uh, for them to use with clients. So, I, I think, look, ultimately, the entire industry we are paranoid about it, and we spend a tremendous amount of time on it.
2: Okay. Lastly, no ETF state of the union is complete without talking fees. And it's interesting, <laughs> I, I feel like the, uh, the so-called ETF fee war, you know, that was all the rage a few years ago, got a ton of media attention, but it does seem thing, or seem like things have quieted down at least a little bit uh, on that front. Can you just offer any insight into how iShares views ETF fees right now? And do you still think this is an area where over time the general direction is lower for the industry overall? Uh,
4: look, I believe ETFs offer tremendous value to investors. Uh, if I ask you, would you have believed a few years ago that you would be able to buy the S&P 500 in one ETF at three basis points? It's just incredible. Uh, when you look across, I'm not talking even iShares, if you just look across the industry, the access through all the exposures that the industry has been able to create for investors. Uh, the, the, and in our case, what we believe is super important is, is not only the value, but it's also the quality uh, in terms of what we do. So iShares, since 2015, has helped save investors over $400 million through reductions in fund fees. Uh, so there's been tremendous amount of sharing the scale and the growth through uh, reduction in fund fees that go to the bottom line of the investor. At the current levels, I think ETFs, compared to any other alternative in the industry, offer tremendous value. So I think that you know, like, I would flip that uh, once you are at three basis points uh, for investing in the S&P 500. Uh, I think that we need to look beyond not just the value, but the quality. What does that mean for us? It means all the investments that we make in the technology platform to support the growth of our range so that we make sure that when things, uh, you know, in moments of market distress like last year, things work. Everything works. Investors get the experience that they're expecting from our ETFs. Uh, the portfolio engineers that run our products, uh, all the talent that we hire, the educational pieces that we create, going back to all the uh, education and tools that we create for clients, the product innovation, all that represents huge investments to add value and quality to to clients. It's not just the fee of the ETF.
2: Extremely well said, Armando. Uh, Before I let you go, Let's close on a fun note here. And I alluded to this earlier. You were at BlackRock when iShares was purchased in 2009. And I believe at the time the deal was completed, if I'm not mistaken, total iShares assets were around 300 billion versus the over 3 trillion globally now. I'm just curious, any good stories or anecdotes from around that time? Like, like was this purchase seen as risky internally, or did everyone know it would be a home run? What What was it like back then?
4: Yeah, that's, that, it's actually really interesting, because when I was, um, during that time of the acquisition, I was actually running uh, our Latin America region from New York. Um, and what is interesting to me, uh, and hopefully you find this interesting, is that what I was missing in my sliver to be able to really have the growth that I needed in Latin America were, were ETFs. Uh, so I was always looking at what BGI was doing uh, because they were building a tremendous presence in the institutional segment. So it goes back to what I said before, not just retail investors. In this case, uh, in Latin America, uh, pension plans uh, where um, they, they had um, allowed ETFs to be used in portfolio construction for pension uh, for the pension system in in key markets like Mexico, for instance, right. So BGI was just killing it; they were experiencing tremendous growth. So I was dreaming with the idea of having an ETF platform, and then of course there was an announcement that's like, okay, now we have it. Um, and um, look at the time. So for me, I didn't have. It was just great to have now an index platform and ETFs and be able to grow. There was a lot of uh, back and forth around combining index and active, and all that is a muted point. Um, and I'll leave you with, with the final uh, uh, story there. The guy at the time that was running BGI, iShares in Latin America, Daniel Gamba, uh, is now the co-head of Active Equities at BlackRock. And I, who you know at the time, I guess I was Mr. Active, I run iShares in the Americas. So there's the irony, and that's the beauty of the combination of the two firms.
2: It's so funny. uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas, he called the acquisition of uh, iShares the Louisiana purchase of ETFs, which I I absolutely (laughs) love that. (laughs) But Armando, just a tremendous look at the ETF industry this week. Congratulations on uh, the continued success of the iShares ETF lineup. Thank you for joining me this week.
4: Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Nate.
2: That was Armando Senra, Managing Director, Head of iShares Americas at BlackRock.
0: This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com slash sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
2: I'm now joined by David Jakansky, partner at Taroso Investments, who's a sub-advisor for a number of ETFs, including the SoFi ETF lineup. And David serves as a portfolio manager on several of the ETFs under the Taroso umbrella. He's now on the line with me from New
5: York. David, great having you on the podcast. How are you, Nate? It's a pleasure to be here.
2: All right. So we are going to discuss a couple of the SoFi ETFs in particular, but before we do that, uh, do you want to just explain Toroso's business model in a little more detail? I know it can be a, a little confusing for some people. Do you want to connect the dots
5: here? Of course. So to, Torosso Investments is the investment arm for all things we do here, obviously, at Troso Investments. Our sister company, Title ETF Trust, is a trust company that launches ETFs in partnership with companies such as SoFi, We also have the ETF Think Tank, which is a great source for information for advisors on new interesting ETFs and lots of podcasts and uh, video series every Thursday. So just a source of all information in the ETF universe. We consider ourselves uh, the ETF nerds and uh, wear that title proudly. SoFi is one of our premier sponsors. We have six ETFs with SoFi um, and we'll be focusing on a couple of them here today.
2: Which I have to say, with the ETF Think Tank, uh, you guys were kind enough to invite me on the video series. What was that, about a week and a half ago? And I had an absolute blast. Uh, that was so much fun. Highly recommend everybody check that out. You guys have just a great lineup of guests. Um, okay, so with, with SoFi, who currently offers six ETFs, over $400 million in assets, we're going to look at two of their ETFs this week. And I thought we'd start with the SoFi Social 50 ETF, ticker SFYF. Uh, this is passively managed. It holds the 50 most popular U.S. stocks and self-directed brokerage accounts held at SoFi. Just take us from there. Talk about the underlying index process.
5: Absolutely. And, and as you alluded to, it is a, a passively managed product, but the ingenuity is in the construction of what, how we put this together in partnership with SoFi. So the Social 50 index is a monthly rebalancing index that is looking for breadth and conviction of the actual holdings that the participants on their platform own, right? So breadth is actual number of accounts that hold a specific stock, getting the list to 50, and then conviction is actually weighting them by dollars on their platform. We think it is the best-of-breed product in garnering the buzz of social investing, we we find this much more powerful than garnering tweets from Twitter, right? Because there's a big difference between what the people are talking about and the actual dollars that they're investing. So we're tracking the changes in the actual retail marketplace and capturing it in this social 50 ETF.
2: If I look at the top holdings right now, uh, th- these are great. Let me go through these. Tesla, Apple, Amazon, AMC, there it is. Uh, Neo, GameStop, right? No surprise. And then Microsoft, Nvidia, Moderna, uh, Disney. I'm, I'm curious, how quickly did AMC and GameStop show up here?
5: Yeah, so AMC and GameStop were both actually added in our February rebalance. Uh, GameStop with size in our March rebalance. But the beauty of this, and it's a little bit of skill and a little or timing and a little bit of luck, obviously, on the rebalancing schedule. But you have something that, without emotion here, will pull the trigger on a monthly basis and recapture value and rebalance to a more rational rate, because obviously these securities can run quite substantially. So this monthly rebalance, having both in in February, obviously contributed greatly. MC actually contributed about 62% of our total return, about 35 36% this year. Uh, second, actually, was Moderna. Third was GameStop. Um, so it's not always the one you would expect, um, but it's a really unique list because on top of those really high growth names, you have four airlines, you have ExxonMobil and Fiverr and Ford and a lot of kind of deep value companies as well. So it's a very eclectic basket of stocks that's not just these high flyer meme stocks, but it's a way to harness that as well.
2: And I will note, uh, you talked about performance, so uh, this being up, what, 35%, 36%, that's compared to, what, 20% for the S&P. So th- this ETF has just crushed that uh, index. Um, are you surprised that someone like, I-, I don't know, Robinhood hasn't launched a competing product here?
5: Well, I mean, we always expect in the ETF marketplace that if you come first to market with a unique concept that you will have Me too products. Um, but it's it's our business to build best-of-breed products, so we welcome all competition.
2: Okay, so the other ETF I wanted to ask you about is the SoFi Gig Economy ETF, ticker G-I-G-E. And I, I think what's really interesting here is just how everything we've ex- experienced over the past year and a half has really changed the mindset of the labor force. I was actually visiting earlier with ETF Trends, Dave Nottig, and, and we talked about this. But this ETF is actively managed, so you're making the portfolio decisions. Take us through the overall investment case for this ETF and then talk about your process.
5: Absolutely. And so first off, in our eyes, the gig economy, most simply put, is the change in how work is conducted. is It's the ecosystem of all the companies that facilitate the gig economy from solopreneurs to part-time employees. We see this trend hitting Everything from traditional consulting to traditional banking, transportation, payments, e-commerce, et cetera. Um, So one of the reasons why we came out with an active ETF in this space is because we expected it to evolve so much over time. And trying to create one specific index formula for that really didn't really rationally make sense. Actually, when we came to market, we had 40 names. We're up to about 69 names in the portfolio and actually 11 sub-themes. Uh, and that list it continues to evolve. Now, we do obviously put some constraints on our active management to truly allow diversification and exposure to this entire category. Uh, but we're most, what we're most excited about is really the expansion over time. Our active management helped out hugely in the transition last year. You alluded to COVID kind of unlock, unlocking the gig economy. We think that the gig economy was doing very well pre-COVID. But as you alluded to, some of the roadblocks, specifically in the developed world, got crumbled down. The digital payments companies are now almost considered banks in the eyes of almost all consumers in the world, not just in the third world country anymore. Um, so all of this happened in COVID, but it's still very, very early, early innings. Um, and, and we think there's a lot of room to grow. And a lot of new market participants coming through IPOs or direct listings or SPACs on a regular basis uh, some we proceed and jump into right away, and some we take some time and dollar cost average in. Uh, but we we're, we try to be as smart as possible. And while we are active, we do almost call it an actively passive hybrid product, where we do have our conviction tiers, and those have favored very well for us uh, in our a little over two years of existence. Um, but again, most notably, trying to really offer exposure to that whole bucket, which is. Excitingly continuing to grow over time.
2: Yeah, and just to further crystallize this idea of the gig economy, do you want to offer a few examples of of companies here?
5: Yeah, so some of our uh, highest conviction names include Shopify, Square, PayPal, Airbnb, Spotify, Twitter. There's never been a better time to use these tools to get a brand or a voice out. It used to be that you had to go through the established institutions to be granted the right to get your voice out. Um, and now more than ever, people want control of their future, right? You talked about this with Dave in your last segment here. Um, people don't want that traditional workforce cause they don't know that that company is necessarily going to have their back. And there's never been a better opportunity to take some control and maybe turn some things that were dollar-paying gigs into potentially a a side venture that you actually have equity in. Capital markets have done... Sorry. No, go ahead. Over over the last 30 years, capital structures, the capital markets have done so well. Asset prices are at an all-time high relative to GDP. um, And we think that the gig economy is what allows the workers to take back some of that value, not just for dollars, but also for equity.
2: Yeah, I was just going to ask you, as you go through that, and again, I go back to the conversation I had earlier, you know, there's no secret that there has been a shift towards the gig economy. I'm curious, is that reflected in valuations? Like, if you look at valuations across the space, does that concern you at all?
5: We are very bullish on the space of these gig economy stocks and a little bit cautious on the overall market. Uh, So we actually do think that the overall market's valuation is a little bit more stretched than our current portfolio in Giggy. And and it's really hard to put a metric on some of these thematic high growth stocks. What we like to point people towards is either price growth or peg ratio, and look further out just because you don't want these companies to generate massive earnings today. You want them to hit these massive growth rates, which is only possible with reinvestment, uh, to continue to increase their market share into a point of profitability in the future. So the PEG ratios is what we would point people towards, um, which has us at about a, a 1.0, which is about a 40 percent discount to the S&P 500 um, and about a 35 percent discount to ACQUI. Uh, so really what we're seeing here, we saw S&P earnings come in over $50 last quarter, uh, could potentially even pass 200 for the year. Whether this inflationary pressure gets pushed onto earnings, we actually think it's the top line big, huge corporations, the fan companies that are a little squeezed out for future growth, more so than these companies here in this category.
2: David, before I let you go, you were alluding earlier to what you perceive as the value of active management. Uh, here. And I I think certainly in the thematic ETF space, active management can make a lot of sense. You have emerging areas, emerging technologies, and you can make the case for an active manager being nimble here versus taking an index-based approach. What I'm curious about, there's obviously been a lot of discussion around the non-transparent ETF wrapper. I'm curious as someone who is using the transparent ETF wrapper, does that worry you at all that everyone can see your picks every day?
5: Absolutely. So first, uh, on the active and passive uh, comments, as I alluded to, we tried to take uh, a passive philosophy uh, and really what index companies are trying to do is to harvest the randomness of market right? or put tiers towards certain weights. So we have our biases that give us our tiers, but we're still trying to harvest that randomness. We just look at it every single day. right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of these companies have so much volatility and can move so much during earnings or specifically during COVID last year. Um, that just rebalancing and taking that almost index philosophy on a more frequent basis, uh, as needed as the divergence occurs, we found as a lot of value. And also, it allowed us to make a rotation away from, for example, uh, the transportation space and over to the platform space and the digital payment space right in the early days of COVID. Does that mean that we sold uber and lyft completely no but we cut them in half they were still parts of our universe but we reallocated to at the time the pindo duos the jumias the fibers the upworks etc uh, which are still some of our, our top holdings in in this etf right now um, so it allows us the freedom to make rotations but the structure to be diligent with all this randomness that can occur from having 11 sub themes in a portfolio
2: what about the daily disclosure of holdings
5: yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I think that if you're in a liquid asset class, it doesn't shouldn't really hurt you. I think the mutual fund world came in a world of uh, kind of cloaked marketing of all this secrecy of can't release their secret sauce. And oftentimes the best strategies end up being very unique, simple philosophies. And it really doesn't need to be all that super complex. And we've seen some of the best performing managers in the active space just really – be fully transparent and show their cards. And I, I think that it only helps, uh, if not hurts. I think there's a, a place for non-transparent ETFs in the universe, uh, but it might be more in the kind of alternatives realm uh, with supreme illiquidity. Uh, but in the liquid world, I, I just don't really see, no one knows what the future is tomorrow. Um, if you're, even if you're dollar cost averaging into a position and you could always potentially stop. So I I think it's a benefit to our industry and and gets people even more comfortable and helps them understand what they actually own today and allow them to X-ray into their portfolio and see the actual stocks. At the end of the day, we talk about all these ETFs, but it still sums up to a portfolio of stocks for an investor.
2: Well, David, with that, we'll have to leave it there. Again, great having you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me.
5: It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: That was David Jakansky, Portfolio Manager and Partner at Toroso Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, have I got a show for you? I'll be joined by Thomas Petterfee, Chairman of Interactive Brokers. We are going to go in depth on the practice of payment for order flow by retail brokers. I can't wait for that. And then, McMillan's Chris Sullivan is going to give us a unique look at how ETF issuers market themselves. Until then, have a great week, everyone.